Hey there, I'm Sarah from Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and I'm a graphic design student. I really like listening to Compelled because of how engaging and encouraging the stories are. It's awesome to hear testimonies from all different walks of life and to hear about how God is moving in the lives of people across the world. So I hope you enjoy today's episode. I began to secretly wrestle with pornography. I think I, I just started dabbling in it and it began to to quickly become stronger in my, my life. I'm Paul Hastings, and you're listening to Season 4 of Compelled, a seasonal podcast using gripping, immersive storytelling to celebrate the powerful ways God is transforming the lives of Christians around the world. Last week, we heard from Edgar Pacheco Jr. In 2001, Edgar was born into this world without arms or legs. And although he has already faced many hurdles throughout his life, Edgar has always known that God is the one who has kept him and sustained him and allowed Edgar to thrive even without limbs. Again, you can hear that story by tuning into last week's episode with Edgar Pacheco Jr. Today, our guest is Garrett Kell. For years, Garrett chased women, drugs, alcohol, and his own pleasures. But after being radically saved, he began serving the Lord as the pastor of a growing church. Yet Garrett carried a dark secret, an addiction to pornography. But as Garrett would discover, the same Jesus who came to save the sinner also came to deliver the saints. Lean in and join us for another compelling story from the kingdom of God. This summer, Garrett and I sat down in a small classroom at Delray Baptist Church located just a few minutes outside Washington, D.C., Garrett grew up just two hours away in Berkeley Springs, West Virginia, a cultural Christian, but truly a lover of his own self. Yeah, life at home was was good. My family, we, we loved one another. We had lots of, lots of laughs. There was a lot of hard work. Went to church. It was part of our life, but it was kind of a moderate Methodist church where we heard good ideas about God and what it meant to be a good person in a lot of ways, but it certainly wasn't what you might call a, a gospel-centered church. I would have said I was a Christian because, well, I knew I wasn't anything else, and that's kind of what our family was, but I certainly wouldn't even have known what that, what that meant. We moved around a lot before I landed in West Virginia, and I think it really exposed some, some insecurities in my life, and I learned early on how to wear a mask. So whenever we would, we would go to church, I'd have kind of the, the good kid mask on, and then when I went to school, I had the kind of class clown mask on, and then... Whenever I started the sports, that became a place where identity was kind of formed. I was an athlete, and with that began to come yeah, recognition uh, among yeah, kind of the cool kids or whatever, and started going to parties as well. It became a gateway for, for a lot of, of that kind of, of lifestyle, which really characterized most of my latter years of high school and, and yeah, most of, of college. And I, mean, I remember going to a particular party. It was the first one my sophomore year of high school. And I remember going there and, you know, I drank too much and, you know, did some crazy stuff and all of this. But I remember going to school the next Monday and all these people knew who I was. And I remember feeling like I belonged. And so I really just learned how to how to put that mask on and how to just own that. I was kind of a social chameleon. And... That kind of went all the way through through high school uh, until I went to Virginia Tech, which is I, where I ended up going for, for college. 
Garrett loved the lifestyle that he was living, and God was the furthest thing from his mind. So the opportunity to party with 30,000 other teenagers and young adults was like a dream come true. So freshman year, all of a sudden now there's no, there's no parental like oversight. So I have complete freedom to do whatever I wanted to do. And for me, that meant party, party all, all the time. And I would constantly be drinking and then be in yeah, relationships with girls that weren't good. And that was what characterized most of my time. I mean, actually, I had almost failed out my first semester just because all my attention was just on, on having a good time. One day I was driving down this windy West Virginia road and I tried passing a car. And as I did, I was coming around the corner, a propane truck was coming the other way. Mm. And I tried to get back in, but that car was slowing down. So I tried to speed up and ended up hitting that propane truck head on at about 70 miles an hour. It hit the front of the car and spun it around through my hood a hundred yards. It was a legit collision. And um, I was at the house recovering and our pastor at the time, he came in and visited me. He looked at me and he said, you know, Garrett, I just want you to know that the reason you lived is because God has a plan for you. That's all he said. And I'm not blaming him for the way I responded to it, but with my unbelieving kind of worldview, I just took that as confirmation that God and I were cool and that I could keep doing what I was doing and mm. that he kind of had his hand on me because I was special. I went back to college uh, my sophomore year and that was a really bad year with drinking and drugs. The drugs began to evolve into other things. I mean, I would smoke weed. I was drunk or high. Most nights, uh, it began to really just became a crutch for me because I think I, I didn't know who I was. But yeah, that year was was a bad year with relationships. I hurt a lot of people. I was a manipulative, deceitful guy. I see in hindsight now how how wicked it was. Mm. At the time, it was just kind of everybody was having a good time is the way we thought of it. But we, yeah. were, we were hurting each other a lot. I could see that it hurt, but... Um, I cared, but I didn't care. Like I had a soft spot to where I was tender toward it, but I was I was selfish enough that it just didn't really, yeah, it didn't change me. Guilt, shame, somebody else's sorrow wasn't enough to change me. I was, I loved my sin. I, I loved the sin. It was, I mean, I would get as creative as I could in all the different ways to indulge in it. But then at various times, Garrett would question whether he and God were really so tight after all. Perhaps he and God weren't cool. One of those times happened overseas. I went on a study abroad, which you probably shouldn't call it study abroad. I went abroad, didn't do much studying. Uh, I did a lot of partying. So we went to Europe, toured all of Europe. I mean, we went to Rome and Paris and Amsterdam and, I mean, Venice and Switzerland, all kinds of amazing places. And in hindsight now, I just see I wasted the trip. I mean, I was drunk or high 30 out of the 31 days. But while I was there... There was a guy, uh, his name was Jason, and he was a, he was, you know, he was a, a unique guy in the sense that he often wore green, didn't like wearing shoes, and uh, we always kind of called him the leprechaun because he would kind of skip around everywhere, and, um, but he was always happy. He was the, the most happy guy that was on the trip, and we were at all party, and we'd try and get him to go out because we thought it'd be fun to get the leprechaun drunk. He just, he wouldn't, he wouldn't partake with us and all this kind of stuff. Well, one night I'm, we're on the Euro rail going somewhere and I come up to Jason and I see him sitting there and I say, uh, and he's just grinning. He sees me just grinning like he always did. And for that, it just irritated me. And I was like, why are you so happy? And uh, he looked at me and he said, well, because I'm a Christian. And I said, I said, well, I'm a Christian. 
And he said what, you know, nobody wants to hear when you say you're a Christian. He goes, you are? I was like, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. I said, I, I believe in God. He looked at me and he said, well, the devil believes in God. That made me mad. Mm. Uh, and I, you know, I don't know what I said to him at the time, kind of blew him off. But it was one of those little things that stuck with me. I was like, am I any different than the devil? I was like, because I know about God, but I, do I know him? And again, I wasn't, I wasn't ready yet, but it was one of the many seeds that the Lord would be sowing uh, in, my, in my heart along the way. Garrett pushed those uncomfortable thoughts about God out of his mind. This was his life, and he was going to make the most out of it. God wasn't going to get in Garrett's way, and nothing, nothing was going to go wrong. Or at least, that's what he thought. After the, the study abroad, go back home. I'm feeling kind of empty, so I call up girlfriend, and we go out on a date, and we're just sitting there hanging out, and I could tell something was off. And, uh, you know, I'm trying, to be, I'm trying to be cool. I'm like, what's up? You, you okay? And she looked at me, and she goes, I'm pregnant, and it's yours. I said, okay. I said, uh, I said, well, I said, well, we'll get this figured out. I was like, I will, I'll help you. I have some money. We can, we can, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll make our way through this. We'll, we'll be okay. And she said, no, she goes, I, I want to know, are you going to marry me? And, uh, I was, you know, I was 20 years old and I cared about her, but I, I wasn't, I wasn't ready to get, I wasn't ready to get married. So there was a, uh, a friend of hers who, they offered to help her get an abortion, and I helped to pay for it. And um, we decided to kill our baby. I mean, I, I was there when she took the pill. I was there when she when she bled. I was there when we yeah, we, we flushed our baby down the toilet. Um, I was there when we, we both cried and we didn't know why. We were sad, but I don't think we knew why we were sad. Mm. And you know, I look at it now and I realize that I had gotten to the place that I loved my life and my sin so much that I was willing to, to kill my own child in order to keep my life the way I wanted it. It took a chunk out of me in a way that I, the only thing I knew to put back in that hole was more drink and more drugs and, and more relationships. Garrett and his girlfriend kept the abortion a secret. Their relationship didn't last and they soon broke up. She became yet another casualty in Garrett's lifestyle. And to mask whatever remorse that Garrett did feel, he did the only thing he knew to do, which was to party even harder. Yeah, my junior year was a dark year. I had uh, three girl roommates and a uh, live-in girlfriend. One of the girls was a bartender. All three of those girls were rave girls. We would often have raves at our, at our apartment. Um, you know, we had drugs and um, music and everything that came with that. And um, that year, the, the sorts of drugs I got into was even deeper. You know, began ecstasy and cocaine regularly and all that, that kind of stuff. And you know, those are all things I never would have thought I would have gotten into, but that's, that's kind of, that's where I went. I threw a, uh, I was going to throw a Halloween party and, uh, I invited an old friend named Dave to come down for the party. 
Dave came down and uh, I greeted him at the door. I was like, hey man, come on back. I brought him back to my room and uh, I had a sixer of his favorite beer. I had a bag of weed and I told him I had a girl for him to get to, to know for the, the weekend. He closed the door and he sat on the bed and he looked at me and he said, hey Garrett, I appreciate all of that, but um, I, uh, I, I, don't, I don't do any of that anymore. He says, I love Jesus now. Hmm. I came down here for this weekend because I want you to know that Jesus loves you too. I know this weekend might be kind of hard, but I, I want you to know that, that Jesus cares about you and he, he loves you. To which I was like, okay, <laughs> more for me. I was like, whatever, man. I'm like, okay. And just kind of blew it off and, you know, tried to joke with him, but I could tell he was, he was sober and serious about it. Yeah. Um, and he hung out for the, for the weekend. And uh, I remember even that night he was sitting on the couch, talking to somebody, but you could tell he was very much out of place with what was going on. But as I watched him throughout the night, he had kind of the same thing that that Jason guy had. Yeah. He had a peace about him and he had a joy about him that I couldn't find at the bottom of a bottle or the end of a blunt or with any kind of relationship. I just, he had a peace about him. It was very intriguing to me. So after the weekend, Dave goes back. We start writing some emails. He was so kind and he kept trying to, you know, reason with me. And uh, a couple of weeks later, I was in the middle of another rave at the house and everything. And all of a sudden, I just started to feel the weight of darkness. I don't know how really to explain it, but it was one of those moments where everything kind of went into slow motion. And I was doing drugs, so there was there's something to it. But I began to see people differently. Everything all of a sudden started to look darker and everything felt very scary. I even felt like I had something sitting on my back in the middle of the, the party and I'm standing there and it, it just freaked me out. And I went, back to, I went back to the bathroom and put water on my face and I looked in the mirror and I asked myself, I was like, who are you? What are you doing? Because I had done all these crazy drugs and all this stuff. This is not who I ever thought I would be. I went in my room and I closed the door and I said, all right, God, if you're real, show me something. And I looked down and there was a Bible that my parents had given me my freshman year. And I always used to hide it under my bed because it would cramp my style. Well, somehow corner of the Bible was sticking out from underneath the bed. And so I grabbed it and I sat down at the desk and I played Bible roulette and I just opened up randomly to Ezekiel 18 in the New Living Translation. It says something like, the one who sins is the one who dies. A father will not be judged for his son's sins, nor will a son be judged for his father's sins. But everyone be held accountable for what they have done. Each one will be judged according to their own sins. And then it goes on to say, but do you think I delight in the death of the wicked? No, that they would turn and live, says the Lord. It, it, it freaked me out because I felt like it was talking to me. And I had been around the Bible before. Yeah, It was always just a book of stories to me. But that time, for some reason, it felt like it was speaking to me. And it's interesting because at this point, I, I, I was completely sober. Whatever happened, I was all the, the effects of the drugs, it was just gone in a, in a way that doesn't, doesn't happen. So I opened back up and I started reading some more. And I, I mean, I'm, the techno music is going. I'm in my room, my black light's on, and I have my desk light and I start reading and I'm in Romans. And I come to Romans chapter two, and in, again, the New Living Translation, verse four, it says, do you not realize how kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Or don't you care? Can't you see how kind he's been giving you time to turn from your sin? But no, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God will judge all men according to my gospel, according to Christ Jesus. And that's, it hit me right then that God and I were not cool. 
and I felt the weight that if I was to die, I would, I would be doomed. Garrett had no idea what had just happened, but it was definitely not normal and something that he certainly did not want to repeat ever again. More on that after the break. If you like to stay up to date with current events, then you'll especially appreciate another podcast I enjoy called The World and Everything in It. It's a daily news program, about 30 minutes long, delivered every weekday morning by Christian journalists from around the world. And they aren't just rehashing the current headlines. They're actually doing investigative, boots-on-the-ground journalism while providing biblical cultural analysis. I started listening to their show about five years ago when we first launched Compelled. And since then, they've become one of my go-to sources for understanding current events from a biblical perspective. But they pull no punches. In fact, they tell the facts just as they are, even when it requires sharing uncomfortable truths. Maybe that's why they're one of Apple Podcast's top 100 news programs. Join me and thousands of other Christians from around the world who listen to the world and everything in it. Just search for The World and Everything in It in your podcast app or visit WNG.org. Summer is here, and so is the chance to take a breather from school. And there's a decent chance that the subject your student is most excited to take a break from is math. But it doesn't have to be that way, especially if you're using CTC Math. Their focus is helping your student learn at the pace that's best for them. Every lesson is fully online with interactive questions and clear explanations. And their video tutorials take difficult concepts and break them down into digestible ideas. But here's the crazy part. They have a 12-month money-back guarantee. That's right, you can use CTC Math for an entire year. And if you don't like it, or it didn't work out for you, or if you're just unethical, which as a compelled listener, I hope you're not, then you just shoot them an email and tell them that you'd like your money back and they'll gladly refund your entire purchase, no questions asked. There is literally no risk for an entire year. You can't beat that because their heart is to serve your family. That's why they sponsor Compelled so that we can continue creating stories that will bless and encourage your family. And they wanna do the same for your students' math needs. So whether summer is a time for your student to catch up, keep up, or move ahead, CTC Math is there. Learn more at ctcmath.com. Again, that's ctcmath.com. Welcome back to Compelled. We've been listening to Garrett Kell share about his college years, constantly pursuing pleasure and with no thought to the Lord. Then one night, just before Christmas break, Garrett had been high on drugs when he felt an oppressive spiritual darkness. Then when he randomly opened his Bible for the first time in years, Garrett felt like the pages in the Bible were speaking directly to him, and he instantly sobered up from his drug high. Garrett didn't know exactly what had happened, but one thing he felt for sure, God was not pleased with him. So I go home for Christmas break, and I take some uh, some ecstasy tabs. That's a drug that makes you very feely and often use it during raves and this kind of stuff. And I, I took one and all of a sudden felt super guilty. I started talking to my sister and I just start telling my sister, because I had no filter at this time, I started telling my sister all of the wicked things that I had done. She started freaking out. She's like, you're, you're gonna die. She says, you can't live like this. Then all of a sudden, I just got sober. 
again, this is the second time. And the first thing I thought was, I need to call Dave. So I called Dave, it was two in the morning. He came up to the house, he was carrying his Bible. He had tears rolling down his face. And I said, I need to talk about Jesus. And he said, uh, he said, do you know what I was doing when you called me? I said, no. He said, the same thing I've done every night since I left Virginia Tech, I was on my knees praying for you. Mm. He opened the Bible and I, I don't remember what he said to me, but God used that again to crack in and, and work in my heart. I don't know whether I was born again at this point or not, or whether this was just a spirit calling me to himself. I'm, I'm unsure, but it, I went back to Virginia Tech different than when I left, not having repented of all my sins, but I became very aware of all of my sins. Mm. So I had a live-in girlfriend and, you know, our relationship was not pure. And I remember telling her on Sunday, I was like, hey, I don't, I don't think we're supposed to have sex on Sundays because I think, I think that, I don't think God likes that. On Sundays. Um, yeah, on Sundays. So, and then on Monday, I felt guilty again. I was like, I don't, I don't think it's supposed to be Monday either because the day after Sunday, I think. And then I started just becoming convicted of things that I didn't, I didn't know. And I, rem I mean, I remember I used to, I used to get my Bible at night. I would smoke a joint. I'd turn on the black light and I'd get out a highlighter. I'd sit on my bed and I'd just start reading. And I was like, this is amazing. And I'm learning all this stuff. And then I couldn't remember what I just read. <laughs> and that's why I quit smoking weed. I remember taking all the weed and flushing it down the toilet. Well, I threw it in the trash can and then ended up digging it out and smoking some more. But over a couple days, I ended up finally getting to the place where I was like, I need to throw this away because I want to read what's in the Bible, but I can't remember any of it when I'm smoking weed. Yeah. You know, this, this poor girl that I was living with, like she moved in at the height of my depravity and that's what we had in common. And all of a sudden she sees me like clothed and seated and in my right mind, throwing away drugs, saying no to, to our relationship, starting to go to church, starting to read my Bible. She's like, what has happened to you? I was like, I don't know, you know, cause I didn't know what was happening. It came time for spring break and a buddy of mine named, named Adam, he's like, bro, it's spring break. Let's go to Panama city beach. And I was like, nah, I was like, I've been reading the Bible and I don't think I should go do that. And he's like, bro, you, you just need a break. And I was like, nah, okay, let's go. So we decided to go Panama City for spring break. And we're driving down there and I'm just talking to him. I'm like, dude, I feel like God is following me around. And he's like, man, you just, you need to, you need to chill. We just need to get away. We're driving into Panama City beach and no lie, this plane flies overhead with one of those big banners behind it. And it's got like, you know, John 316 written on it. Uh, like God so loved the world. And I was like, look, dude, God's following me around. He's like, ah, it's, it's, it's cool. So we go to the hotel, we check in, we go sit on the beach, bring our cooler down there. We're drinking beer. I've drank too much. I can feel guilty about doing it. And then all of a sudden I look over and this herd of people come walking over, handing out Bible tracts. And it's, it's a group called Crew. It used to be Campus Crusade for Christ. And they, they come over and this guy walks up to me and he says, hey, do you know that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? And uh, in my mind, I'm thinking, this is about right. You know, and he walks through the whole thing and I'm kind of blowing him off. And then he walks away and I looked at that. I was like, dude, God is following me around. He's like, ah, whatever. So at night we go to the club and we shut it down. It's like three in the morning and we leave. And again, had too much to drink. I'm feeling guilty and we need to get a ride home. And all of a sudden these three vans pull up with like Turner Burn, Rapture Ready, Jesus Saves, God Loves You, all that kind of stuff written. It was these church vans and they were giving rides to drunk people. And uh, I was like, 
look, dude, God is following me around. He's like, no, but we'll walk. Thanks. And, you know, went back to the hotel room, smoked some weed and we got hungry. So we went to Waffle House. And then all of a sudden this group of, of people come in carrying their Bibles. And this guy walks over to me and he looks at me and he goes, are you from Virginia Tech? And I said, yes. And he said, well, my name is Shelby and I'm down here with a group called Campus Crusade for Christ, now called Crew. And I think I've seen you at a church that you visited. Have you been to this church? He mentioned it. I was like, yeah. He goes, yeah, I think I saw you there one time. Uh, he said, hey, I don't know if you'd be up for it, but how about when, when we get back from spring break, you want to maybe meet up and just, just talk about what God's doing in your life? And I was like, okay. So I gave him my name and number, you know, and he, he went off to do, do whatever he was doing. And my buddy Adam looked at me, he goes, God's following you around, <laughs> wow. you know, and he, he could see it. I mean, it was like the Lord was pursuing me. Yeah. And, and that, that there were several other things that happened like that, uh, during that trip that the Lord really made it clear for me that there was a line in the sand and that I needed to follow him. So I went back to, back to Virginia Tech and I had kind of a moment of sobriety, um, after all of this, where I really stopped doing doing drugs and, and everything. And I remember God gave me a real moment of clarity where I started journaling and I, he, he helped me to remember so much stuff. And I chronicled everything from my youngest childhood up to that moment. And he brought to mind about 17 different instances where people had shared the gospel with me. Wow where people had sowed the seeds and it was little things from a coach who used to say dadgummit playing basketball. And I asked him why he didn't cuss. And he said, because he was a Christian, he wanted to honor God with his word. So it wasn't a gospel presentation, but he made a little stand for it. It was just like a little seed. Yeah. And there were like 17 of those that the Lord had, um, had given over the years that I guess Dave had, had watered and God made it grow and he saw it. And, um, the Lord really humbled me in seeing that, that I had resisted him for so long. Yet he had kept following me and following me and pursuing me. And that's why when I think of myself as being a Christian, I'm like, it's definitely a miracle. I mean, there's, I didn't want, I didn't want God. I, the only time I wanted God was for him to help get me out of stuff. I wanted to, him to get me out of trouble. Uh, I wanted to use God for stuff, but he, for some reason, wanted me. And he had pursued me and sought me and kept me from so many different times I should have died along the way. Um, but he had arranged so many, um, yeah, miraculous interventions. Garrett began meeting with his new friend, Shelby, who he had bumped into at Panama City Beach during spring break. They began reading the Bible together, and Shelby would help answer questions that Garrett had. By this point, Garrett had become a zealous Christian, even going so far as to print out Bible verses about judgment, wrath, and hell, and nail them to the door of his former cocaine dealer. And of course, Garrett's roommates thought that he was crazy, but Garrett didn't mind. Instead, he had a new mission, which was to tell others about Jesus and how he had been saved. So after my junior year, I go back for the summer and I get this idea that I need to tell all of the people from high school about Jesus. So I I meet up with that same pastor who had come to me after the car accident. Your old Methodist pastor. Old Methodist pastor. And I told him, I was like, here's the, here's the deal. I would like to throw a party for Jesus. And what I want to do is I think I'm going to have a kegger at my house. 
And about an hour in, I'm going to turn on the lights. I'm going to stand on the keg and I'm going to tell everybody about Jesus. I was like, what do you think? And he's like, I appreciate your zeal. He goes, how about we do, how about we do something different? Uh, how about you can use the, the church for anything you want. Just don't have the keg here. Uh-huh. And um, why don't you do anything that you want here? And I was like, okay, deal. At the church. At the church. So I was like, okay, we'll do this. So we decided to call it Christ Night. And uh, I did the marketing for it. I didn't have, I didn't know anything about, you know, how to tell people about Jesus other than I had no pictures of Jesus because I was going to do it. I was a marketing major. I was like, what are we going to do? So I got a picture of the South Park Jesus in one of the classic episodes of Jesus versus Satan. And Jesus has <laughs> his, his hands up like this. And we called it the fight for the afterlife and all this kind of corny stuff. But, uh-huh. uh, and I remember I put it in the newspaper. I took it a full page ad in of, the newspaper, in the newspaper, local newspaper of, you know, Christ night, you know, come here stories about how God's changed lives and listed some of the people's names in there. And I remember the Lord, and again, um, I don't know if you want to call it a vision, but I, th- I think the Lord gave me a, 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 a vision where I pictured this, ch- this Methodist church and I pictured people filling the whole thing and people hanging in the windows and all this kind of stuff. And I remember telling Jason, one night I called him at 3 a.m. We were, so I, I went from non-Christian to, you know, pretty charismatic, Methabapticostal sort of whatever that is, uh-huh. um, where uh, we went and uh, I told him about this vision. I said, we got to pray. So we, we went Jericho in the place and walked around the building at three in the morning, praying, you know, asking God to keep Satan away, all this kind of stuff. We went around praying on every seat in the, in the place, asking God to save people and all this kind of, I mean, we were, we were all the way in. And, um, you know, we ended up having this, this thing called Christ night. And, uh, and sure enough, it was uh, hundreds of people showed up. Like they thought it was a joke that we were throwing a party at a church. Really? And while I'm standing on stage to welcome everybody, every seat was filled. There were people hanging in the windows and there were people standing in the door just as I had, had seen. Mm. And I don't use this lightly, but I think we saw a revival, like a, a legit God intervening in a unique season to save people where Dozens of people got saved. And out of that event, there were pastors and missionaries and people's marriages were healed. People repented of sins. People confessed sins. There was, and we now hindsight, looking back, there was about 90% of it is stuff I wouldn't do now, but the Lord totally used. Yeah. And God saved a bunch of people. God began opening all kinds of doors for Garrett to share his testimony, both one-on-one with individuals and in front of audiences. But Garrett became convinced that he needed more discipleship and training. So after graduating from Virginia Tech, he moved to a suburb of Dallas, Texas, and enrolled in a program for young men considering joining the ministry. I found out about a discipleship program in Denton Bible Church, a guy named Tommy Nelson, who basically had a discipleship program where he would yeah, take guys verse by verse through the Bible for about nine months. Moved to, to Denton, Texas, and four days a week, we would get up in the morning, go verse by verse through books of the Bible, went back uh, through the program two more times. So I did Tommy's discipleship program. One year was New Testament, one year was old, one was a mix. And basically, I followed him around everywhere he went. 
because I was hungry for the word and I followed him everywhere. And then the Lord was really beginning to, to work, I think also with my, my humility. I got on stage too quickly because I had a unique sort of testimony and my personality. People put me on stage fast. While I was at Denton Bible Church, actually that first year, um, we were supposed to find a, uh, a ministry to be a part of. And so my first thought was like, I'm gonna be a part of the college ministry because this is, I can minister here and I've, you know, God might use me there. So anyway, I get there and the, the pastor's name who was overseeing that was a guy named John Bryson. And uh, he could smell right away that I, I strutted a little more than, than mm. a Christian should. He told me, he's like, hey, Garrett, we've got something really important for you at Access. Access was like the, the, the big um, Friday night, I think it was, or whatever night it was of the week where, you know, several hundred people would show up at this thing. And, you know, I envisioned myself being a part of that. So he's like, hey, I got a really important job for you. So I come to that first meeting and I'm pretty sure he's going to put me on stage to share my testimony because he's probably heard about my testimony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, okay, hey, follow me. And he brought me backstage right next to these, right next to the ropes. And he said, your job tonight is I want you to pull the curtain for the people who are on stage. And uh, when they when they come out, you need to open it. And when they go out, they need to close it. And it's really important for you to, to serve the people who are out there. I remember while I was there, how, how much pride was boiling in me. Mm. I found myself criticizing the people who were out there. I was like, if I was out there, I'd have been doing it this way. And who's, who's why is he putting me back here and all this kind of stuff? And God has never spoken audibly to me. But in that moment, there was a very distinct impression that went something like this. If you can't serve me back here where no one can see you, just as you would out there where everybody can see you, then you're not doing all of this for me, but for yourself. Mm. And I will not give my glory to another. Whoa. It was one of the most important lessons that I learned early on, um, that God didn't need me and that I, I was not impressive. And that Christians don't strut. Nobody struts into heaven. Hmm. Struts when you walk next to Jesus. In addition to Garrett's struggle with pride, a new temptation arose, this time with pornography. And it wouldn't prove to be an easy battle. I think I just saw something one day on the internet on, a, on my roommate's computer. I had seen pornography before as a non-Christian, but as a non-Christian, it was it wasn't really my thing because I had relationships that that was more what I was I was into. But this was the first time as a Christian that I think I had seen it, and I think I, I just started dabbling in it, and it began to to quickly become stronger in my my life. And at this point, I was really wrestling with my image in a way that I didn't know how to be honest as a Christian without disappointing people and making people think that what I thought about Jesus wasn't true. Hmm. So I really began to, to wrestle in there with that secretly. Then an opportunity came up where there was a group that was driving from a town that was about an hour and a half away from Denton called Graham, that they were driving over to Denton Bible Church. And they said, hey, listen, we, we want a church like this in our town that just teaches the Bible. And uh, so a group started that little deal. They had a little Bible study and they started watching videos of, of the pastor. And they're like, hey, listen, the videos are great, but can we have like a human? Like we want a real, we want a pastor. And uh, so they got a rotation of guys to be a part of that. And I was part of that rotation. And I, I remember going out and I, I preached and it's this little, little town out in the middle of like, you go to nowhere and then just a little bit further. And that's, that's where it was. And yeah. uh, they were so sweet. There were about 13, 14 of them. And uh they basically, they, they asked me, they're like, hey, would you, would you be our pastor? And I said, I said, no. And they said, well, would you think about it? I said, no. 
And they said, would you pray about it? And I said, no, <laughs> no, I will not. Uh. Um, and the reason was, it was just the exact opposite of what I had ever envisioned. I wanted to be in a city when there were 10 million people and no churches and nobody knew God. And this was a town of 10,000 people where there were 40 churches and everybody thought they knew God. It was the exact opposite of what I had ever envisioned. But I liked the preaching and I liked them. So I kept coming back and kept preaching. And in God's providence, the church grew from 13 to 30 to 60 to 90 to, and we were on a storefront to 120, you know, uh, you know, fire code violating, standing at the door kind of situation where the joke was don't, don't evangelize, you know, the, the fire marshal, cause we'll get in trouble. And, uh, it was packed every, every week and the Lord was blessing the work and it was, it was remarkable. And the growth and success is, is I think what made it so difficult for me to see how unhealthy I really was because all the while through this, my secret struggle with pornography was still there. And I ended up moving to, to that town and they took very good care of me. They were very hospitable. They loved me well, but I felt very alone. I'd confess to one person and be like, Hey, struggling with some, some purity stuff. Would you pray for me? And that was kind of my, my code language. And then the next time I'd tell somebody else, the next time I'd tell somebody else. So I spread my confessions out. So nobody had, nobody had a pulse really on how I was doing. Mm. I see now that it was deceitful and I had what I, what I now call the, the Solomon complex, where there's so much blessing that's happening. I mean, the church is growing and people are getting saved and marriages are being healed and God is working and it's evident. And so I think I assumed that he was just okay with my sin. So even the same wrong view of God that I had as a non-Christian of kind of assuming that God and I had our own little understanding, I think I thought deep down that I was special in a way that would allow him or that he would allow me to have this sin going on that he knew I was, he knew I didn't like it and was trying to fight it, but that he was okay with that going on because so much good stuff was happening. But despite Garrett's private assumption that he and God were cool with his pornography habit, everything was going to come to a head in a very public way. More on that after the break. The world tells young women to seek popularity, beauty, pleasure, or whatever will make them happy. Yet the more they chase after those worldly dreams, the emptier they become. That's why I'm excited to tell you about a special conference designed for mothers and daughters to encourage them that there is just one thing worth seeking after, Jesus Christ. The conference is called Seeking Christ and takes place at the Ark Encounter in Kentucky, September 20 and 21st. The conference is taught by Sarah Malley Hancock, the founder of Bright Lights Ministry, and includes skits, real-life examples, studies for moms and daughters to do together, and bonus sessions by Ken Ham and Martin Isles from Answers in Genesis. Plus, you'll get to walk through the full-scale replica of Noah's Ark there at the Ark Encounter, which I've actually done and is incredible. Young women will be challenged to seek the Lord first in their lives, deepen their love for God's Word, be rooted in their identity in Christ, gain vision for close family relationships, and shine their light brightly for the Lord. The primary focus is for young women ages 10 to 18 and their mothers, but of course, women of all ages are welcome to come. Learn more at brightlightsministry.com. Again, that's brightlightsministry.com. You love Christian testimonies. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to Compelled. 
But imagine if you could enjoy compelled stories from Christians throughout the ages, including those who've already passed away. Well, that's what our friends at YWAM Publishing are doing through their Christian Heroes book series by retelling the incredible stories of Christians like George Mueller, a man of prayer who ran an orphanage for 10,000 children in England who trusted God to miraculously provide food and shelter for those orphans, sometimes on a daily basis. Or Elizabeth Elliot, whose husband was murdered by the Aka tribe in Ecuador, but chose to forgive and move in with the tribe to share the gospel with them. Or Brother Andrew, who during the height of the Cold War smuggled Bibles to Christians behind the Iron Curtain, all under the noses of communist border guards who could have imprisoned him for life or worse. These are the types of stories that YWAM Publishing is printing, and their books are written for kids ages 10 and above, but frankly, adults love them too. They've published 50 of these biographies so far, and we just partnered with YWAM Publishing to bring you five of my favorite stories. These are the Christians that have inspired my faith and millions of others for decades, which include the three testimonies I just mentioned, as well as Corey Tin Boom and Amy Carmichael. We're calling it the Compelled Christian Heroes Bundle, and I actually worked with YWAM to select these five specific stories, and they agreed to drop the price in half just for compelled listeners. So it's $30 and includes free U.S. shipping. To buy this bundle for yourself or to give to a friend, visit compelledpodcast.com slash YWAM. That's the letters Y-W-A-M, compelledpodcast.com slash YWAM. And trust me, if you love listening to stories on Compelled, you're going to love reading these stories too. Welcome back to Compelled. Garrett had now been the pastor at Graham Bible Church for three years. The church had seen significant growth under Garrett's leadership, and people's lives were being changed and marriages were being restored. But all the while, Garrett was carrying a dark secret. He couldn't stop looking at pornography. He would find it, but still couldn't give it up. By this point, Garrett had ended his previous long-distance relationship and was now dating the woman who would eventually become his wife, Carrie. On their third date, Garrett fully confessed to Carrie his struggle, and she reminded him that if Christ could forgive Garrett, so could she. But although Garrett began to have victory from sexual temptation, his previous sins were about to be exposed very publicly. About the same time, a friend named Reed, who was an Acts 29 guy uh, in Nashville, was thinking about uh, going to plant a church in, uh, in New Jersey. He and I had been planning to do this. So I got really convicted, though, that I should tell Reed kind of everything about my history with, with sin. So I wrote what I now call the letter. And I wrote out basically all of my sin since I, the time I'd been a Christian in the realm of, of, of sexual sin, particularly in, in pornography. And I emailed it to him and then got on the plane. We landed in Jersey and uh, I have a voicemail and it's Reed. And he says, hey man, got your email. I think we need to talk. So we meet up at a coffee shop and he looked me in the eyes and he said, brother, I love you very much. He goes, but I, I read your letter and... I do not in good conscience feel comfortable with us moving forward, partnering together to plant this church. And he said, and to be honest with you, I don't think you're qualified to be a pastor right now. And just as Dave had made a stand to save my soul, uh, I think Reed did the same thing as a believer for me. I had never had anybody 
who really stood up to me in that way. I said, what do I do then? He said, I, I think you need to go back to your elders and you need to take the letter and you need to let them read it and you need to let them lead you through it. It began what I now call the year of the anvil. An anvil, as you likely know, is a, it's a metal service that you lay something on and you beat it into conformity to whatever you're, you're trying to do. And that, that is what the Lord began to do in me. So I came back and I went and met with the elders. I gave them all a copy of the letter and I told them, hey, listen, in two days, why don't we get together and let's, let's talk about what to do. You know, those, those brothers didn't, they hadn't signed up for that. Hmm. I mean, all they wanted was a church in their town that preached the gospel. All they wanted was a pastor who would be honest and love God and help them love God. And what I did hurt them they didn't know what to do and I didn't know what to do and it was messy um, the elders decided that I needed to publicly confess what I had been doing um, so from that meeting the the contents of the letter um, were shared uh, with someone who shared it with someone else if you've ever lived in a small town, um, it doesn't take long for word to begin to, to get around. Um, and it mutates as it does. Um, so there began to become a lot of questions about things that are going on with the pastor at the, at the Bible church. And after a sermon, um, one of the elders gets up and says, hey, uh, some of you have likely heard that, uh, that Garrett has some things going on in his personal life. Um, and we're going to talk about it tonight at a meeting. So if you'd like to hear about that, you can come back. Now, our church, we had started intentionally without membership. I mean, it was anybody could come. So we had people who were part of the, the church community, as well as people who had never been to our church, people who had been visiting our church. I mean, Texas town, 10,000 people. The pastor is going to talk about sexual sin. Who's, who's not going to go? So it was, it was, a, it was a full house. And yeah, um, yeah I remember sitting on stage that night and it was like all of my worst fears were coming to fruition because i'd always hid behind the mask because i i was afraid that people would what they would think about me if i was honest so my insecurities my fear of man both of those sins really fed my hypocrisy of mask wearing in my confessions and my life and all of this right and now i am just like masks off. I'm utterly exposed. And I'm just sitting there on stage and I remember it was time to start and I just told everything. And um, that hurt a lot of people, confused a lot of people. In many ways, a lot of what I feared would happen happened. There are people who left that meeting and have never stepped into a church since because they couldn't bear to think sitting under somebody else who might be a hypocrite like I was. There were um, people who were, you know, tender and gave hugs and people who just you know, went to other churches and lots of different things. And, well, the next day, the next Monday, um, a couple of the elders get calls saying, hey, we heard something big went down and we weren't able to be there. So we are requesting another meeting. So two weeks later, we did it again. And, um, but my sin, my sin hurt people in a way that I needed to see, you know, 
The blowback was tremendous and shook the entire town of 10,000 people. Everyone was talking about it, the local pastor with a porn problem. But that wasn't the end of the story. I began going to counseling. Um, his name was John, John Henderson. He uh, sat down and he was the first person to help me to understand that the gospel was not just for non-Christians, but that Christians needed the gospel just as much as, as people who didn't know Jesus. And he showed me how the gospel applied to brokenness hmm. and to my sin as a believer. It changed my life, you know? It changed my life. I had preached texts like, you know, in your weakness I'm made strong, but I didn't know what that meant. But I learned, you learn the hard way sometimes. You know, the discipline is not, as Hebrews 12 says, uh, enjoyable in the moment. <laughs> but there's a peaceful fruit of righteousness that's produced afterwards. And um, God began working that in me. Anyway, about 50 days before my wedding, I'm over at a, a member of our church's house. She was a widow, and I was helping her with some yard work. Got a bunch of brush together. And in Texas, when you get brush together, you burn it because that's, well, that's what you do. You set things on fire. So, exactly. Um, so... Got this big pile of brush and um, asked, I said, Judy, is it okay if I burn it? She's like, yeah, so. And I just wasn't thinking. And I put gas on the brush pile. And it was a very humid day. So all of the fumes just stayed right there. And I, I went to light. And when I did, the whole thing just exploded. And a fireball, a fireball consumed me, like went around me. And it was just a huge flash fire. And, but I, I remember I looked over at Judy and I was like, how bad is it, Judy? She looked at me trembling and she goes, it's bad. Basically, I, I, had, I had been burned. Uh, my face, if you're a hot dog that gets on the, the grill too long, you know, it turns all black. Well, my face was like that. My arm was like that. My leg was like that. My neck was like that. So we get in the car and he's taking me to the hospital and, um, I remember talking to the Lord and saying, okay, Lord, I don't know that I can handle if I'm going to never look the same. I mean, my whole life was about appearances. And here I'm thinking I'm going to be forever disfigured in a way that, you know, others had learned to, to live with that trial, but I, I didn't know what that would look like. And I remember there was a person at the hospital, Carrie called and said, uh, is Garrett okay? And this person said, while I'm in the in the emergency room. Yeah, he, I think he's going to live. But uh, God sure has a way of giving us what we deserve, doesn't he? Oh, man. Anyway, I ended up getting care flighted from there. But the helicopter had to land in Dallas or in Fort Worth because the wind was so bad. And they took me in an ambulance to, to Dallas Burn Ward, where I was in ICU for three days and in the Burn Ward for seven more days after that. I didn't look at myself for three days in the mirror because um, I was afraid. Carrie was writing wedding invitations from the burn ward, not knowing what I would look like. Every day they would take off the bandages and put you in something called the tank. Being burned is bad, being scrubbed is worse. So they have to scrub off your skin um, every day. Again, it's coming in so it doesn't scab over because it can get infected and then you would, you would die. So yeah, that was torturous. But she was by my side night and day. I told her she didn't need to marry me because we didn't know what I was gonna look like. She's like, whatever. She was in no matter what. Mm. And uh, mm. that was 50 days before our wedding. Wow. But you know, when I went 
came back to the church and um, we were just different. The Lord had really broken me and humbled me in some ways that I needed to be, purified me, helped me to I learned to live in the light. Hmm. I learned to learn what it meant to be a Christian who tells the truth. Hmm. Speak the truth to one another in love, right? Remembers of one another. I don't think I ever knew what that meant, but I, I learned in those days. Yeah. It was interesting. People left. Some people left. But not everybody left. But what did leave was uh, people's hiding. And the God, God really used that whole ordeal to begin to help people confess their own sins. I think it helped for them to see that God had changed me and that I loved them. And I was really, I'd gotten to the place where I was finally ready to just stay there the rest of my life. Didn't matter if nobody ever knew who I was. These people knew who I was and, and they loved me in spite of me. As we closed our conversation, I had one last question for Garrett. How would he counsel someone struggling with pornography? Not just a pastor or someone in ministry, but any Christian. Tell the truth. Stop lying. It's so scary in the dark. Like it's, it feels safe to hide in there, but you've got to step into the light. And what people think of you does not, it's not it doesn't matter. There's freedom in the light. So I would, I would say it may, it may cost you greatly, to be honest, but it's worth it because you get Jesus. So if you've been convicted at all, I would encourage you to not, quench the spirit. That's the Holy Spirit convicting you. Right now, text somebody. Right now, email somebody. Right now, while you feel it. Don't try and reason and think, oh, this is, this is the last time. I'll never do it again. Or if I do it again, then I'll tell somebody. That's garbage and you know it's garbage. That's why you're still where you are. This is God's merciful intervention right now for you to hear this. And I would say, right now, reach out and just tell the truth. For me, 2007 was the hardest year of my life, but I would not trade it for anything. God gave me more of Jesus in a way I never knew was possible. And I'm, I'm not a perfect man, but I'm not enslaved anymore. Garrett, I appreciate your time, man. Really appreciate your testimony. Thank you so much. Praise God for his grace in all our lives, and thank you. Amen. Garrett's story covers a lot of ground, and there are a lot of themes that we could examine, but there are two that really stand out to me. First is the way that God used multiple people in Garrett's life to plant and water little seeds. I think about Jason, the leprechaun on the train in Europe, or Dave, the Christian who came to Garrett's Halloween party to share the gospel, or the countless crew staff and volunteers at Panama City Beach during spring break who were reaching the lost. God used each of those people in different little ways and in different little moments to open Garrett's eyes. And whenever Garrett would look the other way, God would send someone else to stand right there. The second thing that stands out is what Garrett learned about near the end from the counselor walking him through his sexual addiction. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not just for non-Christians, but it's just as necessary for existing Christians. Whether our struggle is with sexual sin, anger, bitterness, pride, discontentment, or any other sin that seems unmanageable or unstoppable, Jesus came to save, period, the sinner and the saints. Today, Garrett is happily married to Carrie, and they are the proud and busy parents of six young children. Garrett is now the pastor at Delray Baptist Church in Alexandria, Virginia, just outside Washington, D.C. You're welcome to visit any Sunday that you're in town. 
To learn more about Garrett, visit his website, garrettkell.com or visit compelledpodcast.com and pull up the show notes for this episode. We'll include some photos of Garrett during his college years at the Burn Ward and more. And we'll include links to his website and some books that he's written. Also, we'll be giving away some autograph books from Garrett this week. To enter the drawing, simply head to our website and find our show notes. You can also listen to this full two-hour-long behind-the-scenes version of this interview when you become a monthly supporter of Compelled on Patreon, which will also give you access to all of our episodes one week early. But most importantly, you'll be helping us create new episodes just like this one. You can learn more at compelledpodcast.com. Finally, if you're looking for a podcast app on your cell phone, then I would suggest CastBox. It's very easy to use and lets you download episodes to listen to ahead of time for when you're offline. You can download CastBox from Google Play for Android or the App Store for iPhone. This episode was edited by Zach Feller and Will Jackson. Our media assistant is Ethan Adams, and our associate producer is Sarah Hastings. Special thanks to my friend Gabriel Afont for filming this interview. He flew all the way to Virginia from Texas, which deserves a shout out all on its own. Also, special thanks to Pastor Juan Sanchez for introducing me to Garrett. Juan was a compelled guest during our very first season. And Juan has an exceptional story about being raised as a devout Catholic altar boy who then converted and eventually became the president of the Texas Southern Baptist Convention. We'll include a link to his story in our show notes as well, or you can just pull up episode seven of Compelled. Stay tuned for a sneak peek from next week's episode. I'm your host, Paul Hastings, and you've been listening to Compelled. We'll be back with another compelling story next Tuesday. I went before a judge. I thought the most I was going to get was 25 years. I had multiple, multiple burglaries against me, but I was sentenced for five of them. I was sentenced to five 99-year sentences. I was 19 years old. And it was I was just sort of like in shock. You know, it's over. I'm going to be in prison the rest of my life. One last thing before I go. If you'd like to meet up this year in 2024, I will actually be on the road for a few events, either speaking or exhibiting at some conferences. I am still nailing down all the details, but already I know that I'll be at the Texas Homeschool Convention in Fort Worth from April 18th through 20th, the other Texas Homeschool Convention in Houston from May 30th through June 1st, the Home Educators Association of Virginia Convention in Richmond from June 6th through 8th. And there's also the chance that I might be at some other events in Louisville, Kentucky and Nashville, Tennessee later in the year, but we haven't finalized those details yet. If you live near any of those locations, then I'd love to meet you. You can also see our latest up-to-date calendar of events at our website, compelledpodcast.com events. And I hope to see you there.